The Builders, Gedolim who created movements and shaped our world. Presented by Gedalia Gutenberg and Rabbi Ephraim Zalman Galinsky. When I was a little bit, I wrote a book. כמובן, לא הייתי כותב דברים כל כך עומדים ברומו של העולם, אבל הייתי כותב. היו כאלה שמשחקים עליי. מה זה, זה מה יושענו זה? סופם, הם הלכו, לא חיברו שום ספר. ואני ברוך השם חיברתי 40 ספר כבר. Okay, welcome back everybody, and welcome back Rabbi Galinsky. We left, left off with Vadya displaying a certain boldness, and I think we say in Yiddish, plates us, his, his broad shoulders that he's going to evince later in life. He demonstrates an, a willingness to take on those far uh, greater than him and older than him, for certain. This boldness actually started at a very young age, I think even before he's 20 years old. This was at a, a sheer series of shiurim that his Rosh Hashiva, Rabbi Ezra Atiyah, asked him to, to deliver. It was a group of Balabatim, what they would call then Bavliim. Bavliim means they came from Iraq. From Iraq. He was also from Iraq. But at a very early point in his life, he decided that he's going to break away. In order to understand what Ravadia did in, the, in those early stages of his life, we have to understand the background of Jewish life in Baghdad and Iraq in, in general. It probably spread much uh, over the Sephardi world afterwards, but we have to understand one of the great Gdolim, probably the greatest Godel that emerged from the Sephardi world in the last 100 years was a person by the name of Rabbi Yosef Chaim. I don't think he had a last name, like you said before, we don't, we don't know last name. Rabbi Yosef Chaim of Baghdad, otherwise known as. Right. And his nickname was on a safer called the Ben Ishchai. He wrote other svarim. He wrote uh, Benayahu. He wrote uh, Ben Yoyoda on, on, ben, ben Yoyoda, on, right. on, on that goddess of Shas. He, he felt he was a great Makubal also, besides being a Ishalocha, he's a great Makubal, and he knew that he was a Gilgal of Benayahu Ben Yoyoda. That's why his. Uh, who was? Who was Sassar uh, Tzava in. Uh, by David. David Amalek. He was a general of David Amalek, right. So he was aware of his right. Gilgal. Like the Alexander Eber or the Kajnitz Magid or something. Anyway, I'm displaying my total <laughs> b- b- lack of knowledge when it comes to Chassidja. Okay, so um, he was probably the most greatest influence on Iraqi Jewry for sure, probably on more parts of the Sephardi world. And he actually captured the Sephardi world regarding halacha, especially what we call the Bavliim. The Bavliim were totally submitted to the halacha of the Ben Ishchai. And the Ben Ishchai had a sefer that was um, written on the, uh, the, according to the Parshas HaShavua, and he brought down halachas according to the Parshas HaShavua. You go to Sephardi Yeshivas, you still see they're learning through Ben Ishchai Halachot, right? right. They go, they're going through it according to the Parshas. So Rabbi Zatiyah, I don't think Rabbi Zatiyah knew of this uh, change that happened in Rabbi Yosef. Rabbi Yosef, even though he was an Iraqi, very early on in age, he decided that this was, I don't know, an insult, but uh, the, the fact that the adoption, the, of, uh, the adoption of, of the Ben Ishchai's halacha was at the expense of Maran Bet Yosef.
that until that point, until the Ben Ishchai, the major Pesach of the Sephardi world was Maran Bet Yosef, Rabbi Yosef Karo, the author of the Shulchanoch, the Kesem Mishnah. And when Ben Ishchai came onto the scene, that pushed that aside. Now, this is very, very major differences over here because, number one, Ben Ishchai adopted many Kabbalistic uh, rulings. And number two, Ben Ishchai had correspondence with Ashkenazi Gdoilim and with Ashkenazi Sfarim. He consulted with them. And he incorporated what Avadi Yosef called later on Ashkenazi Chumrot into the Sephardi Psak. And Avadi Yosef, early on in his age, decided that he is going to Lachzir Atarale Yoshna. That was his first Lachzir Atarale Yoshna. Which was a revolution. Right, to bring back Rabbi Yosef Karo. Now, this started at a very young age because Rabbi Zeatia sends him to give a shir on Ben Ishchai. Oh, Can you imagine? Okay, to the Bavliim. Do we know where that shir took place? Where did it take place? I don't know, I'm asking. Uh, <laughs> I, presume, I don't know. I presume okay. somewhere in Bukharim or yeah, somewhere probably in that area. And he's giving Shia there, and he's arguing with the Benishchai. They must have gone mad. They went mad. <laughs> and they came to snitch on him to Rav Ezeatia. Right. And according to Rav Yosef, Rav Ezeatia says, continue giving the Shia and continue arguing with the Benishchai. You should know, it took Rav decades to put out as a series of svarim called Halichot Olam, which came out very late on in his, in his life, to show you how it wasn't a Pasha Tazach to do that, he put out a sefer called Halichot Olam, which was actually Ben Ishchai, a reversed v- version of Ben Ishchai, meaning taking Ben Ishchai, using his order, and reversing it back to Psak of Bet Yosef. You mean, that, as it were, the absolute direct challenge, the ultimate challenge, printing a Ben Ishchai with the official, not just getting up in a shit, that had to wait. That had to wait decades, right. But as a teen, as a teenager, before as a teenager, he was married. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is just unprecedented to go and make a, a, you know. It always fascinated me because if you take people like the Chazunish and Ramosha Feinstein, right, it always fascinated me that logically they shouldn't have made it. Why? Because the Chazanish... Made it as, as, a, as, as the major Paiskim, right? Because the Chazanish, you look in this form of the Chazanish, like he starts with the Sugya, right? And he reaches the Alocha through the Sugya, and he doesn't care what other people say. I mean, right. he, he doesn't consult with the Achroinim. Totally original. I remember learning a, a, a certain, uh, it was, I think, in the Sugya of Asmachta, which is a very, very complex Sugya in Choshen Mishpat. Like the lotteries and, you know, things like that are dealing with Asmachta. It's a very complex issue. And I remember I was learning the Chazanish and uh, reaching, a, a, I think it was an eight of the Beis Yosef to solve this issue. And the Beis Yosef gives eight reasons why his solution is a good solution. Okay? And you overwhelm the Chazanish. And the Chazanish doesn't mention anywhere that he's talking about the Beis Yosef. He just goes through each one of the eight reasons and destroys them. Right? Right. And you'd say, a person like that, how would he be accepted as the major Pesach of, of Klaliso? And that's what happened at the end. And you look at Ramesha Feinstein, it's the same thing. He goes straight from the Sugyas, okay? Paskins understands the Sugya the, the way he wants to learn it, and he Paskins from the Sugya. And you see, you see Siata Rishmaya, that with all these considerations, it logically wouldn't work out. And it says, Aravada Yosef, you have this idea as well. He was so revolutionary and. He made it at the end. Not only did he make it, he changed the face of halachic psak, probably from then on to eternity, unless a, a new Ravad Yosef comes along. But today you can't ignore Ravad contribution to Sfari Halacha. That's the major voice today. I mean, there are places, by the way, Ravad Yosef had a colleague in yeshiva, the same age as him, who learned with him together. 
And my Rebbe also, Rabban Yafin Zuchon of Rocha, was a great Eloi, was a neighbor of his and a fan, a big fan of his. He used to mention in Shir many times, as far as that he heard from Marana Bashaul. That's, that's what he used to call him. He was a colleague and a, the same age as Rabbi Yosef. Totally different approach to Halacha. Again, he was a big fan of the Chazanish, the, of Chacham Ben Tzion Abashaul. And he did follow Ben Ishchai and he did follow sometimes Kabbalah. Until today, there are groups within Sephardi Jewry, especially in Shalayim, who strictly pass in a contour of Ben Tzion Abashaul. He also has Chuvis form called Orle Tzion, mm-hmm. which Ravad Yosef has Chuvis really trashing this form of Orle Tzion. But, uh, despite they, gr- they were very close. They were very, very close and very friendly, and they used to walk home together from, uh, I think, the old city. They used to walk from Pat Yosef to Geula, they used to walk home and they used to learn to, uh, Gemara Baal Peh on the way. So I'm not saying Ravad Yosef did not totally capture the Sephardi halakhic world, but, mm-hmm. but the, the vast majority follows it. If you go out into Kibbutzim, Moshavim, all across Israel, anything that's slightly traditional, you're going to see there's a kind of a standard library. If they've got any Sephardim in their little shuls, they're even places where there's not much learning going on, right? And I've noticed this over the years. You're going to see two things. One of them is a set of Zohar with a commentary, a set of Zohar with a commentary of the Balasulam, right? Uh-huh. And the other thing... I've noticed where you see that set, you'll definitely see a set of Yalkut Yosef. Uh, Yalkut Yosef was, was that from Ravadi or his son? Yalkut Yosef is a sefer written by the current chief rabbi. Right, right. Yosef, and based on his father's Based stadium, on his father's Which is how we started in the first, in the first episode. That, that was the, that's, it started in Hebron Yeshiva. No, you right. can't take a tshuva sefer and give it to Balabatim to learn. You have to have like an orderly sefer according to the halachas, according to the days of the year, according to Yom Tov. My point is just go anywhere in Israel and anywhere that's faintly traditional, you will see that is the gold standard. They've got the reading out. They may read out from Yalkut Yosef and they're taking his psokim and he and Ravad Yosef's spirit hovers over huge parts of, you know, even geographically of, 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 the, of this country over here. You know, we've left him, as you say, in his teenage years, already demonstrating those broad halachic shoulders and the boldness, the, the willingness to argue and take on um, positions that are unpopular at the time. But there's one more figure we have to bring in, was obviously his life's partner, was his, his, his Rebetzin, the Rabbanit Margalit, Margalit Yosef. So what do you know about her, Ephraim? So it's interesting, I saw Sfarim who talk about this, that while she was alive, we didn't know anything about her. But when she was Nifter, then all the stories started to come out. And then they realized that the big force behind the Ravadia was Rabbanit Margalit, who was Moise Nefesh Kepshutai, Begufa Ubemamoina. She like gave from her own money to print his farm when it was not, <laughs> not something easy at all. 
So she was an orphan. She came from Assyria. And there's a really charming story. It's not just charming. It's actually very, uh, just to illustrate who these two people, very, very special, Ravad Yosef and his wife is. And, and how they how they met was she, it's just very interesting how I think she had a stepmother who didn't make it so easy for her. She lived for a few years away from her when she, she wanted very much to get married. And the, the minute back then it was when, you know, want to go to a first meeting, first date, you didn't go to a hotel. What The, the family of the prospective groom, you know, the, the chassan would come in with him. The two families would meet and both the, you know, the, the boy and the girl would, would sit there in the room and they'd get a chance to kind of get impression. And she was so disgusted by the fact that they would, all these families would talk about was money, right? It was about the money, who, who was going to get money or who, who had more money. She did not like the people being su- uh, suggested to her. So she would quietly, each time she'd literally do a runner, she'd slip out to the merpeset and get away. And there was someone who introduced him. She was uh, Ravad Yosef, and she was actually taken by. He was a, he was a very unusual sight in those days, a Sephardi ben Torah, a ben yeshiva, who's Sephardi. There weren't many of them, and she was taken by him. So he came along to an official. You know, the next stage was he came along to meet her father. And her father seems to have been. I think it was uh, you know it was a Yodea Sefer, and he was he loved learning himself. And so he sat him down for the, the you know, the Shver sits down, the prospective son-in-law, to talk and learning, to talk. And Ravadia loved learning. Ravadia just loved learning. So he got caught up with and it. And he got caught up. <laughs> I don't know what time they came for the meeting. We're probably about eight o'clock at night. He said, the story goes, is Ravadia's daughter writes this, that they sat there and just got totally lost in time. The 11 o'clock struck on the clock. The hour chimed. And he still hadn't met her. And he hadn't met her. <laughs> She'd been waiting in the next room, ready to meet this, you know, the chassan and to this man she's going to go out with and she'd give it up and her father knowing just how much she can she if she doesn't want to go to, to, to meet someone she's just going to exit he in panic he's got this amazing shit and he literally he said he runs into the she runs into he runs into the room where she is and he finds she's going to sleep right and he says please just give him a chat she says no i'm not having anything he's maybe a wonderful guy and talmud chacham or whatever it is but but i can't not for have me. not for me someone who does just forgets himself like that that's it and the father goes out and he really feels like he's and he goes back to ovadia yosef as, as he's then and he says to him unfortunately i, I don't know what to say my daughter she doesn't want to meet anymore. And Ravadia says, ask her if I can say one sentence to her, right? And so the father goes and he, he all sorts himself out and she says, fine, I'll, I'll listen to her for, for one minute. And he goes in and says one sentence and she comes out and says to her father, I want to get engaged to him. Wow. Right? And for years, the father and the family asked, what was it uh, What was it that he said? What was that amazing, this, this killer uh, sentence that he managed to persuade you to change your mind? And many years later, she told the story. She said, Ravadia said to me, if you take care of my Olam Hazer, I'll take care of your Olam Haba. Beautiful. Wow. And, and, she, <laughs> and she signed up for it. Meaning, if you see the incredible poverty, the grinding poverty that they lived in, and the daughter describes it, this was Yerushalayim back in the day. They had no Paranossa, nothing, nothing to feed the family. They were going hungry. And the own, his only Paranossa, had he Paranossa, he wanted to learn most of the day. His family and her family did not support any of what they were doing. They, they said, you're mad. You're sitting alone. It's not going to get you anywhere. And he couldn't get a position. He couldn't get a position then because of he was too independent to get a position. He couldn't even get a position in his own. He was the biggest time. No, you have to understand when Ravad Yosef became chief rabbi, Sephardi chief rabbi, we're talking about decades later, he uh, gave a, like a public speech to all the Sephardi Rabbonim at that time and he showed them 
that we were talking about, you know, the Ashkenazim ruling over here, he showed them that out of like, I think, 100 Dayanim, there were 74 Ashkenazi Dayanim, and the rest were Sfarim. So you're talking about a position. There were no positions. Meaning positions meant money. Right. Positions meant paranosa for the family. Number one, he was Sfardi. So where was he going to get a position? Mm-hmm. At the end, he got a position over in Cairo. Well, that, that leads us over there. So, I mean, just Liz Chus, it has to be said, you know, behind every great man is a great woman, etc. An old phrase. There is no kibshuta. That is exactly the that is the case. There's no better example of that. And she was the paragon of what what she must have been a person. And if you read what her children describe, it was not easy because most of Ravavadia's life and active rabbinic career, he lived. And this was actually he believed in this. He lived amongst the people. He lived in secular places. So later on in life, and this is after he gets back from Cairo. He gets to Cairo in a minute. But after he gets back from Cairo, he goes to he's become a dayan in Tel Aviv. In, in, in Right. And Reuven Katz is based in. Right. And he lived in a secular building. All of the people, the, the family, the children, remember, they used to come downstairs on Shabbos morning and they all come back from Shul. And the people there be sunbathing and smoking, smoking cigarettes, etc. And Ravadia, Ravadia could have chosen different words. Ravadia had this approach. We're going to go down to the people. We're going to change them. And what did he do? He went over to each of these Mechale Shabbos and he schmoozed to them. And how are you? How's your week? He didn't just ignore. He really made an ASIC of it. I have to tell you one of Ravadia's lines, you know. You're growing up in your slang like 40 years ago, you already heard these lines from Ravadia. Yeah. One of the lines is, he used to say, mm-hmm. I hear that. You can hear That's a very good invitation, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so I just remember this particular thing in Petach Tikva. He said there was one neighbor who was an extreme hardcore secular person. He was very... And actually, this neighbor was really, really against the fact he said, this young guy, this, you know, I'm sending my kids to the army and this rabbi, this young man is not going to the army and etc. And Ravati was still was young. He was a dying in Petr Tikvan in his 30s. And he only started warming to this rabbi when he figured out, when they said, someone said to him, he's not anyone. He's a shofet. He's a judge. Right. And so he could understand, oh, it must be something different. But this particular neighbor, he said, you know, he would smoke on Shabbos when they came back. Ravati didn't say anything. He just, he was, he was nice to him. And it worked because what happened was once Ravadia comes back on Shabbos morning and this man is busy smoking and he hadn't put out the cigarette and they, they started to put out the cigarettes and to kind of like cover up a bit better when he approached because they just learned that he's a very nice person, very mechubadik person. And they, they saw this as a special person. We want to behave in a more dignified way of him. But he didn't notice. He was looking the wrong way. And Ravadia said he was too close to, you know, put out a cigarette. Ravadia comes up to him, wishes him Shabbat Shalom. And he notices this person has a strange look as if like uh, under tremendous pressure. He's not looking good. He said, what's wrong? He said, no, no, nothing. Everything's good everything's good and but he's making it clear that he wants Ravadia to go and Ravadia goes and he takes the cigarette out of his hand out of his pocket oh wow <laughs> he's he burning his hand but in other words that was his approach he lived and the kids growing up in these secular areas one place after the other in Petatikva and in Tel Aviv and I think in Yerushalayim as well I think Tel Ariza which is now Barilan was not a religious place back in the day right it was mixed it was a mixed place and the kids played with all the neighbors and they knew they were different anyway that was his approach but he was only able to do that because of Rabbanit Magalit, because she was clearly such a force and she believed so much in what he did. And so everything, you know, as, as Rukiva said to, uh, about Rachel, he says, everything belongs to And in this case, it's not hard to see.
Rafaim, we have to go very quickly to Cairo over here because this is a family living in grinding poverty and he can't get a rabbinical position. So in, I think, age 24, he heads off as his first rabbinical position, heads off to Cairo. There was a large Jewish community in Cairo in those days. Right, pre-state, because I think it started emptying out after 1948 when there was Jews accused of spying and many of them were involved in Zionist activities and there was etc. And I think in that period, what we're seeing is his ability, A, to go down to, to his interest in education, because when he comes there, he's actually officially was not the, the rabbi of Cairo. He was the deputy chief rabbi, right? Which presumably meant that he was brought in, as in many cases, there was a kind of like a figurehead, older figure, but he was brought in as the halachic expert, whatever it was. Just to get a, a glimpse of how important that kehila was, mm-hmm. is because we have, uh, I don't know if you, if you ever saw this, a f- fantastic biography, I would call it a doctorate on our Primeuser, put out by Rabbi David Kamenetsky. No, never saw that. It's fascinating. It's really really a, a work of art, scholarly work. And he mentions there, Rabbi Moise was fighting to prevent an appointment of a certain person as the chief rabbi of Cairo. Now, today you tell that to someone, you'd say like, Cairo? Yeah, what do you care about who the chief rabbi of Cairo is? Right. But it was a major place at that time. But it had fallen low because like much of the Sephardi world, and this is kind of very important to understand the context, Ravavadi Yosef encountered a Cairo, which is obviously the Rahman lived in, you know, it was it was an ancient community. Uh, did the Radvaz, was the Radvaz also, not? Yes, yeah. uh, hundreds of years before. I mean, it's a place with a, a great important roots, but he encountered a community that was traditional, but rapidly spiraling into uh, you know, assimilation. And, and, and that was under the French influence then in, in Egypt was strong. And the French Jewish community, the secular French, uh, had the organization called the Alliance. All over the Sephardi world. All over the Sephardi world. And they, and they operated there. And to give you an idea, it was very secular. You know, they opened Alliance schools. Actually, there's a building in Yerushalayim, on the main building in the center of Onachov uh, Yafo, is Kol Yisrael Chavirim. Right? Have you ever seen the arch over there? Kol Yisrael Chavirim. And it says on the Alliance Israelite Universelle, which is, that was the organization. And he comes along, and to give an idea of how secular and how, how far they were drifting, was that most of the shuls in Cairo had a microphone and, and, and you know, operating Roshani and Kippah for the Chazan. Wow. So that was, I mean, this sounds like German reform, right? right. That's because they, they, they were not officially reformed. They weren't, but that was coming from that was coming from this French push. That was very much a French thing, a French Jewish thing that they were pushing this into it. And he had to come in. And say, what he was very active with, active with the base then, and he was sitting because of the intermarriages going on and the Shalas and Memzeros and all different things that were. He had twenty-four-year-old had to start passing on major things like that. But he immediately started with young people in the community, and he had some type of shiurim going on. And the family remember this as t- some type of Ghanaian because they were given good, uh, you know, was given a nice salary and given a nice house. And this poverty, poverty-stricken family from Yerushalayim suddenly treated like kings. And they said they remember the years, in those years, what they used to do on Sunday afternoon, they used to take the boys from the Shia, and he never called them his Talmudim. He said he called them, he referred them probably in Arabic, as his Chaverim, as his friends, right? And he used to go and sail down the Nile together. <laughs> and Avadi loved singing. And then it, the lovely family memories that the daughter, you know, the family remember from these the years. recordings of Avadi singing at, because at he, loved, and, and, he was a world famous mumcha in what they call. Uh, 
Makamim, which is like the uh, Makam means in Hebrew radar. You don't mean a radar. No, 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 not that. No, it's it's the the notes of Arabic music. Arabic, of Arabic music, music. The notes of Arabic music. They used to come and consult with him because he knew he was a mumcha in that. Right. So both before and after Cairo, you know, both before in his poverty-stricken state and after when he returned to Yerushalayim, he was also very, very short on money. And he used to make money by going around, being a chazan shuls, laning, being a chazan shuls. That's how he supported his family, whatever it brought in. Not very much. He couldn't get a rabbinical position. I think he left Cairo because he refused to be lenient on a certain uh, ruling. It was a few things. It was because as, as things heated up there, Hughes was arrested by the police. King Farouk, it was Egypt, was before Nasser's uh, revolution. He was ruled by a king, King Farouk. He was very friendly to him and gave him gifts. But the, the army accused him and they arrested him and they interrogated him with Zionist spy, etc. So it was the suspicion against him and it was the fact that the community did not like his chumras, right? right? And the story goes like this. It was very simply, it was he discovered that the sheikhat of Cairo was shechting. There was no chumras involved. The guy was shechting donkeys, Wow. Right, and he was selling it, and he said he only noticed this because he said this is not does not look like kosher meat. I don't know, I don't know what donkey meat looks different from other meat, but whatever. Apparently, the sheikhet was the seller of the meat. The, yeah, well, okay, right. like, like we've said. had Oilam more recently as well, and he had this run in. Now this sheikhet, he had to leave because this sheikhet wanted to kill him. And he ambushed him. He hired an assassin. The assassin, he told the assassin when he's going to come past, the, the rabbi is going to come past on Friday night after finishing. Exact time thing and place. And the assassin waited for him. And just that week, he was detained by someone else to ask a shaila in the shul. And the gabba of the shul, who the assassin assumed was the rabbi, was killed. Wasn't killed. His face was disfigured by acid. Acid was thrown wow. into his face. Wow. He got bodyguards afterwards. This sheikhat was such a was such a birium, was such a mafioso. Ten years later, in Petach Tikva, he came to try and kill him again, and with a gun stuck in his waistband. And they eventually, this assassin and they and the official Israeli police put bodyguards on, on, on for him. But he lived in fear of his life until quite a few years later, this man was killed in a shootout by the Jordanian Legion on the border with Jordan because he was smuggling stuff. Wow. Right? So, I mean, this was not this kind of, oh, he was stood up, <laughs> this Rav who stood up. No, it was Kipshuto. He stood up to someone who wanted to repeatedly kill him and he didn't back down, but eventually he had to leave. And when he came back to Israel, he couldn't get a position. He couldn't get a position in Parat Yosef because internal politics, whatever. And he had to go back again to a life of poverty, to living life of poverty, and eventually, and to go around to support himself by going right, to the There's shul. a certain point that Rabbi uh, Pesach Frank uh, invites him to uh, his koilol, Kerem Tzion. Where was he? And then this is before he became a Dayan in Petach Tikva. There is a Tkufa. I didn't know that. Yeah, Rabbi Pesach Frank had a koilol that was under his Nasius. It was... Uh, so he saw him as one of the... Yeah, he realized... That he realized was this was someone very, very big. So he goes along, and in his time in Petach Tikva, we find, again, he's demonstrating his willingness to stand up to the kind of like the rabbinic establishment again. Because the Rabbanut in those years decided that they're going to create some type of standardized halacha to kind of like bring together Ashkenazi and Sephardi halacha on certain things. Right. This is extremely important because if you're talking about... Let's talk two cases, okay? Mm-hmm. I don't know if Ravadi was directly involved in the first case I'll talk about, the second case, for sure, he was involved. Let's say Ashkenazi Minig is that uh, we don't use the hindquarters of Behemoth at all because of the Shilas of Nikur, right? taking out the, the, the veins. I think there's a word for it in English. A word, um, you'd only hear it if you, it's called porging. Okay. What a wonderful word that nobody knows. 
Amen. So Ashkenazi Minik very early on was not to use Chlau, the hindquarters. Mm-hmm. It was a whole Shaila, if at times of World War II, there would be Mekel on that. But that, that was Ashkenazi Minik because of the difficulty of finding Menachem who are really Mumchem. And Svarim never accepted that, that Chumrah. So in the beginning of the state over there, the Rabbanut had to decide, are we going to sell meat under the Rabbanut from the hindquarters? And the what the Rabbanut accepted was in order to make a standard practice is that they're not going to sell. Someone told me that there are certain Badatsim, Svarli Badatsim, who do sell mm-hmm. here in Eretz Yisrael, but officially the Rabbanut does not sell. That's one of the cases where they had to make like a uniformed halacha. Another uniformed halacha has to regard with Yibum because Nashkenazim never practiced Yibum based on the Gemara. They were not sure about the intentions of the person who does Yibum. So uh, Ashkenazim never did Yibum. They did only Chalitza, okay? Do I have to explain the whole... Uh, no, no, well, okay. Yeah. Yibum, okay. Chalitza, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so at the beginning of the state, so they had to decide, are we going to allow the Sfarim? On that point, Ravadio did fight. There's a certain case that he allowed... In that Petach Tekvah Basin, right. Right. He allowed a, a, a Temani... Correct. They had a they had a they had, they had a, a minute a, that a, they a minute to, to, to Yubum, and he says we're not going to give in on this. It was almost like you know we're not going to destroy their minute the, the minute of the hundreds of years that you know of Masoira here. But again, remember he was in his thirties. He was in his thirties, standing up to very big, great people then, and it's fine, and not for the first time. And from those years, we find, I think it's, you know, if you, if you fast forward, you're getting into the time when he rose through the ranks eventually of the, of, of the Rabbanut. And through one in 1973 was elected to be chief rabbi alongside his, his, his Ashkenazi. I think uh, there was, was a stage before that that he became a member of the best in Tel Aviv. Right. Which was which is a higher position than Petach Tikva. Interestingly, actually, I know there's a, there's, a, there's a very nice person, man called a lawyer, a, very, a from lawyer in Tel Aviv called David Shub. Oh, yeah. uh, and you know him? And he's, he's a very, it's a Hevrona, that's right. He's the one who takes the, he, he fights the, 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 the municipality. Shmir Shabbos. And Shabbos, he's a, the high powered lawyer there who who takes the Iriyat to court um, when because they, they've taken a yeah, lot of... He's a Lubavitch that's what makes I didn't you know that. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. He's a third generation Tel Aviv. Anyway, he's a good, good person. And he once told me, so I was walking and stare at the Rothschild and then Tel Aviv. He said, the people there remember, he th- I'm not sure if he said he himself remembers, he pointed to the second floor apartment when he said, Ravati used to sit in and sit in and learn on the second floor of the apartment there, which is now, I think, some kind of boutique hotel. And people remember in Tel Aviv, he used to learn there. He could hear him from the street hour after hour after hour. And he would sit there and he loved those days in Tel Aviv based in. Basically, the function of the Tel Aviv based in was like a way to get to it, it was clear if you get the the, the ba- back in the day clear that you're going to, in the running to become the chief rabbi and he was indeed elected but i think it was shortly after being elected it was the Yom Kippur war and this was something that broke him tremendously and also showed his his halachic stature because after the war in the shocking three thousand thousands of, of of jewish soldiers were killed there were 950, an unprecedented disaster and 950 cases of agunas and he was called Moshe Dayan said to him, the defense minister then said, he realized he needed someone with the broadest halachic shoulders who was going to be accepted oh, universally. Was, right. And therefore, he couldn't re- rely on some of the other figures who right, were. The, who the were headlines more. at that time were Haredi rabbi manages to be matted 900 uh, agunas, right? M- meaning it wasn't. <laughs> It was a legit, it was seen as being broad and his job was, and he sat there, he describes, the daughter writes and described how over an entire year he would sit and his wife would, he and, and, hear, and they would hear, both of them, they would hear the testimony. He would hear the, the, halach, the details that were relevant to the particular case of, of Aguna, these chained wives, as it was called. 
you know, what had happened to this particular soldier and where he'd been seen last and where he'd fallen in battle. And then at the same time, his wife would be hearing from the Aguna herself and she would sit there crying and crying. And the Rebetzin had to go and offer her, you know, a cup of tea and come for them. 950 times over the course of a year. He sat there and Ravadia sat there till late at night with two on him. He said, I'm only doing this if we, if we have two Rebetzalel, Jolti, the Rav Yerushalayim, and, and, and Blazer Goldschmidt. And he said, we only if this is going to be straight out Santa ground based in is this going to be accepted and they, at the end they managed I think to be Matir all 950 of them but it has something very very interesting postscript because what happened in 1979 Rav Yosef gave a speech in Mossad Rav Kook that went down that blew up that was that became very the famous the convention this what convention went on decades it was uh, started by Mossad Rav Kook by the head uh, Dr. Yitzhak Raphael and uh, there were times when it was very, very influential, this convention. And Ravad Yosef gave his famous uh, heter for, uh, land, for land for Peace. Land for Peace. He's, he got up and he said, there's a heter. If there's real peace, there's going to be real peace, then you're allowed to give back parts of Eretz Yisrael from it. It blew up. Now, obviously, what was the concept? Mossad Rav Kook is like kind of one of the flagship institutions of the national religious world who were busy settling the land, right? And the counterpart, his colleague, Ashkenazi Chief Rabbi Rabbi Shlomo Goren, was one of the firebrands for the Yishuv Oretz, etc. And he goes along and he gives this incredible, why was he able to do this? He explained for two reasons, and it was related to the Yom War, because after the Yom War. He had literally the entire senior leadership of the IDF, one after the other, the generals going by us and sitting with him and explaining to him, discussing in the context of that Agunas. But from that, he was influenced and became very close to, for example, Yitzhak Rabin and etc. Other other figures as well. And he said later on. We cannot let ourselves go to another war like that. I had to sit and cry at night. My wife, he said, Mother Rabbanit, and I cried every night over these tragedies. 950 agunas we had to be matter. We don't want to lose another Jewish life unnecessarily again. And that was how he became involved. Therefore, the halacha led to, his involvement in the halacha led to an involvement in a major this policy caused, question. This caused a misconception yeah. that Ravadia was aligned with the left, yeah. which was not true. I mean, halachically, he felt that if the time was ripe and it will be worthwhile, you're allowed to give land for peace. But at a certain point, Rav Shach as well. Right. Rav Shach also believed that land for peace was muta halachically, but Rav Shach never had any emuna, never had any trust in the in the left. And he did. And I think we can we can just follow this along to another very very important thing. One of the almost like central events in his life in 1983, when he should have and wanted to be reelected as chief rabbi, and the political machinations against him, the establishment against him, what he was too powerful, wanted him out, and they got him out. Right. And he was broken. He was broken by, by this. And I had a conversation a few weeks ago by the actual the founder of Shas. Shas, people think, was founded by Rav Avadia, was not. It was people don't know. Rav Avadia Yosef was not the first spiritual authority of Shas. It was Rav Shalom Kohen. It was Niftim more recently, right? And people don't know that 
the Arya Derry people think, oh, he found the Shas. No, he came into it. He was later, right? The founder of Shas was a guy called, a man called Nisim Zev. And I had a conversation with him literally a few weeks ago in which he said he came, Ravavadia was broken when he lost the chief rabbinate. He said, I can't be Mashbia anymore. On, on, he can't. He felt they had lost his vehicle to be Mashbia on Klal Yisrael and the Jewish people and to build it to, to, you know, to and he said he literally fell into bed for a couple of weeks and he said Nisim Zev said I, I went around to visit him and I said to him he said to him Rebbe it's only beginning you were limited by being part you couldn't speak up in certain issues because legally because you were chief rabbi and a senior civil servant you couldn't actually do this now we're going to start Shas and he told him about the movement and he said he created Nisim Zev said that I designed the logo and I designed everything the Shas it's, I chose he said how they chose Shas etc the name and Ravadia was brought on board and that was the time that was the moment when from Shas from that enormous alliance of the right you know with, with the right and, and with, with Begin and etc and Menachem Begin came afterwards money started flowing to, in ways that enabled them to set up the first school that was set up as a result of this was Nevat Yisrael which is next to the bus stops where all the Mira of Reichen take the bus from that's the Nisim Zev school right I just want to point out yeah. that the organization El HaMayan yeah. which was like the major was started by Chacham Ben Tzion El HaMayan was the school's network the school network that was started by Chacham Ben Tzion and had Rav Vadia and board helping him at a certain point Chacham Ben Tzion transferred it to Rav Vadia Yosef because he realized that he would do a better job in funding it and, and bringing the, 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 the masses to it and that turned into what they call Reshet Bnei Yosef today which is a major force in the Chinuch, Haredi Chinuch, uh, huge numbers of schools. Schools, right. just look at the process. Schools feeding into, from there came the yeshiva katanas and yeshivas, and from there came the, sem- the girls' seminaries, high schools, and from there they've built up an enormous a generation. In fact, most of the young Chavre Knesset now are the second generation. Are the second generation are people who, who somewhere have come through, either come through the Shas uh, movement themselves, or, or you know, they're involved in it, etc. He created a force that reshaped uh, society. And I think for me looking back in this thing about Ravad Yosef those words that he said wrote when he was 15 years old the words that kind of predicted his entire career and, and show what he was about right to the end says I'm humble in knowledge I'm not but I'm not scared of anybody and that was Ravad Yosef uh, Zichat Sadek Beautiful Thank you Rabbi Dalia.